from Manufactured Myth and Ledger Domain, a Boston RPG company. Welcome to Role Player with a Thousand Faces, a podcast that examines the art and craft of tabletop role-playing games. My name is Matt Yancic, and I'm a role player that's been running RPGs for 30 years, but also a teacher that uses them in the classroom. I see collaborative storytelling as a powerful bridge toward promoting understanding and building empathy in our everyday lives. After all, we are all compelling characters in the shared story of life. Please join me as I examine the literary, developmental, and cultural aspects of role-playing. And now, let's get to episode three of Role-Player with a Thousand Faces. Today we're going to take a look at what a Game Master does during and after a game. In our last episode, we talked about the things a Game Master does before the game, so if you'd like to start from the very beginning, you may wish to listen to that episode as an introduction to this one. In summary, though, we discussed how, together, the Game Master and the players decide which game they'd like to play and how the Game Master helps the players create characters while also facilitating a discussion about everyone's reasons for playing, as well as considering where player interests and goals intersect on a Venn diagram. Examining this intersection of interests and goals, the Game Master focuses on player engagement, setting up a playing field based on character motivations and the story possibilities that arise from them. If a Game Master does this properly, their players feel something, prompting them to take action with their character, thus moving the story forward. In so doing, the Game Master facilitates change and progress, giving the story created by the player and the Game Master's forward momentum. Today we're going to talk about the ways in which the plans the Game Master has prepared, and the playing field that they've built, connect with the players and their characters during a real, live game and also discuss what a Game Master does after a game. The Game Master is responsible for shaping the geographical landscape with mountains, oceans, and cities, and then populating them with living, breathing beings and creatures that shape the narrative landscape. We'll also discuss how the Game Master uses these two things, geography and narrative, to keep the playing field alive, and how they impact the players, the conflicts, and the game session as a whole. In so doing, we will also explore the duties of a Game Master and how it is that a Game Master maximizes engagement for the players, remaining flexible and open to their input. Most importantly, though, we'll also look at how the Game Master reads the players and their intentions, making predictions about where the story is going and preparing avenues for exploration as the narrative landscape unfolds. While they're aided by discussions beforehand with the players, there is a tremendous amount of thinking on the fly that occurs, and it's essential and important that the Game Master maintain the logic of the setting and stay true to the story. Finally, we'll discuss how the Game Master needs to remain metaphorically invisible, 
and spotlighting characters and conflicts as the story unfolds, maintaining for the players a clear understanding of where they stand in the story, both in terms of geography and narrative. For a lot of people, this is a frightening experience. For others, though, it's exhilarating. Whichever way you lean, in this episode we're going to examine the things a game master does during the game, as well as after, to clarify, understand, and improve the process for all of us. So, the pizza has just arrived and everyone's got a drink. The participants have caught up with the events of each other's weeks, and everyone has taken their seat at the table. Now, what does the game master do? As the unofficial lead of the game, the game master should review the broad strokes of the setting, the rule set, and any particular decisions that were made either during the session zero or in side conversations with the players. While the game master doesn't need to be an expert on any one of these things, they do need to make an effort to ensure that participants are on the same page. Many game masters start with a summary of events by one or more of the players, awarding experience points or bonuses to those able to refresh the memories of others in the group. It's also a good way of gleaning a more accurate insight into what players think happened in the prior game, which is sometimes a little different than what the game master thought. Did the players take that description the way it was meant? Did the players interpret the clues the way they were supposed to? This is a great time to clarify events that may have been misinterpreted by the players, or events that may have been misinterpreted by the game master. Based on the information gleaned from a player summary, it's also possible to change or retcon prior events. It's also a good opportunity to steal an idea or two, or maybe even course correct, should the players have reinterpreted something more interesting than the game master ever thought of. On the other hand, the game master themselves might take the role of summarizing, taking the opportunity to tweak or change player direction simply by cleverly highlighting a non-player character here or a bit of evidence there. The game master can remind players of key decisions made in prior games, subtly emphasizing them, and in so doing make small course corrections to the story. It's also important to put safety measures into place. Unlike a sports game, in which the fouls are fairly predictable, the stories in a role-playing game can sometimes take turns into unexpected or even sensitive areas. It's a good idea to talk about any possible thematic subject matter and discuss ways players can comfortably rewind, revise, or disengage should they feel the need to do so. A good game master sets up an environment that is open and honest, listening to the players and facilitating a harmony among the group, furthering the story in a way that is comfortable for everyone. We'll talk more about safety measures later in the show. For now, though, let's move on to the actual game. As we discussed in a prior episode, the game master spends quite a bit of time before the game considering the motivations of the players building characters with them, and meshing their ideas with the setting and the rule set. Because of this, there's a tendency to assume that the game master actually writes a story, implying that the players have little or even no agency over their characters, nor over the events of the story. In the common shared language of the role-playing world, this is often referred to as railroading, a term which implies that characters are stuck on tracks that the game master has already laid out. 
No matter what the players do, their actions have little to no effect on the setting, conflicts, and drama, and they simply follow events that the game master has planned out beforehand. Instead of creating a story together, the railroading game master is dictating the actions of the players, taking away any ability they have to use their tool, their character, to influence the course of the story. By not adjusting and changing the world, or tweaking the events of the story to adapt them to the actions that the players take, the players are relegated to the status of passive observers with no role to play within the game. The train analogy is a good one when we want to show what a game master shouldn't be doing, but let's consider it from another angle that helps us understand what a game master could or should be doing. In your mind, picture a train with a single car leaving the station. There are four or five passengers on board that represent the four or five players. The engine starts up, the whistle blows, and the wheels start to turn. The train moves slowly at first, but as it speeds up, it gains momentum, going faster and faster. The passengers, the players, look out across the horizon at all the possible destinations. There's a forest of fantastic trees to investigate in the north, an amazing village filled with mysterious creatures to the west, a vast ocean filled with adventure and intrigue to the east, and to the south there's an immense city filled with flying cars, exotic beings, and colorful spires reaching into the sky. After a little discussion, the players decide that they need to go talk to some of those exotic beings, and that they'd like to see what's at the top of the highest and most colorful spire. And so, they head up to the cabin together and each take control of the steering, moving the train toward the immense city. Meanwhile, on the front of the train, there's a person the passengers saw when they first boarded, but have since forgotten. This person is our game master, and though the players had clearly seen this person as they were boarding, they've been having so much fun discussing the possibilities of the landscape spread out before them that this person's presence had completely slipped their mind. But, rest assured, even though the players cannot see them, that person, the game master, is still there. The game master that the players have forgotten about has a literally limitless set of train tracks in a bottomless bag. As the train barrels forward, the game master ensures that no matter which direction the, the players steer the train in, it never runs out of track. This person finds a way to make the direction the players want to go work. And, while the players may not like what they find when they get there, if they want to go, then by Jove, the game master gets them there. And so, when the game master gets the message that the players want to head to the immense city, they don't sweat it. They just throw down a curved set of tracks that will lead the players right there, even though they hadn't planned on it. The game master then goes into overdrive, frantically laying down more and more track. As the train barrels forward, the game master continues to throw track down as they receive their reports. If the game master is paying attention, listening for the signals from the players, thus doing their job correctly, then the players are never aware that the game master is even there. When the train pulls into different stops along the way, the players step off the train to visit various locations and meet the locals, follow a few leads, and maybe start some trouble. While the players are visiting, the game master is thinking about the possibilities and considering options based on the things the players learn at that location. Occasionally, though, 
If things get going a little too fast, the Game Master may shout to the players in the back that they need a little more time to recharge and rethink their course. This is a lot like what a Game Master does. And if the idea of clinging to the front of a train like a cartoon character, laying down track as the train behind you barrels forward seems exhausting, you're absolutely right. But it's also easier to do when you've prepared and planned, and when you do it smartly, it can be extremely rewarding. There's a common saying by members of the military that goes something like this, no plan ever survives contact with the enemy. That is to say, even when proceeding under the best of circumstances, the enemy often pokes unexpected holes in even the strongest points of the best laid plans. The same concept holds true when running a game, and the game master has to be prepared to think on their feet. Once the game starts, the game master rolls with the punches, adapting and reshaping any outline or story ideas according to the actions of the players. While the game master may have planned for one type of scene, the players may throw them for a loop, forcing them to come up with a completely different type of scene. The better a game master is planned and prepared beforehand, the better able the game master is to adapt. And so, if the key word for our last episode was engagement, then the key words for this week's episode are plan but be flexible. But how can the Game Master prepare in a way that does not railroad, and yet at the same time remains flexible enough to hit the curveballs that players inevitably throw? Well, first of all, running a game is not about reading from a script. It's not about dictating events the Game Master wants to happen, nor is it even about giving the players exactly what they want to happen. Running a game is about predicting or making an educated guess as to what actions the player may wish to take, presenting the results of these actions, and then allowing players to continue to explore the landscape of the story. Essentially, the relationship between the game master and the player is one of cause and effect. The player does or says something with their character, and the world or non-player characters or rule set react to it. Then, the world or non-player characters or rules do something back, and then the player reacts to it. This relationship is a loop, an endless cycle, driven by the cause and effect of action and circumstances. This presents a problem for the game master, though, as they must be careful to react with the setting, the non-player characters, and the rule set in a way that at least seems logical, reasonable, and faithful to the context of the story. In order to position themselves in the best place to do this, it is helpful for the game master to think of the game as both a geographical and narrative landscape. Players can move left and right, forward and back within the geography, garnering certain reactions within the geographical landscape. They can also move the story forward or backward, or even sideways, taking certain actions which move them into different positions within the narrative landscape. If the game master understands the reasons the players want to play, as well as the motivations and goals of their characters, then before the game begins, the game master is able to lay out both the geographical and narrative landscapes of the story based on predictions about where the characters might go, both in terms of location within the geography and location within the narrative. 
By knowing the motivations of the characters and the topics and themes that the players hope to explore, the game master really makes predictions about where the characters will go in terms of geography and story. The easiest example to illustrate this is with the typical, cliched start of so many adventures, the tavern. Why do so many adventures start out at a tavern? Because of its value in terms of both geography and in narrative. A tavern is a place of random possibilities, random in quotation marks, and the potential to serve as a launching point for adventure is, while cliched and tired, tremendous. If the characters start out at a tavern, the game master knows that they will need to dot the geographic landscape with non-player characters, a bartender, waiters and waitresses, and patrons. They might also have to create a few sketchy individuals, perhaps some local officials, a farmer or two, and maybe even a thief, depending on the area the tavern is in. Speaking of which, they will have to create a look and feel for that tavern and decide, perhaps, what the street it's on looks like. Story-wise, the game master will also need to dot the narrative landscape by attaching some kind of backstory to those non-player characters, and a game master that has thought ahead knows what non-player characters to invest in. Perhaps the scoundrel in the corner carving their initials into the table is a local thief with knowledge of valuable treasure being smuggled in and out of the town. Perhaps the old men playing cards in the corner of the room are members of a cult responsible for kidnapping locals and sacrificing them to a pagan god. But this is just simple flavoring, and the real proof comes in the way the game master weaves the non-player characters into something that fits the player character's history, and then sprinkles leading clues throughout the landscape, both geographic and narrative, of the story. Let's say a player has created a warrior, raised in the orphanage of a religious sect. Separated at birth, they were told by a trusted member of that sect that their parents were servants of royalty, and now the character yearns to uncover the secrets behind their childhood. Knowing this, the game master can then make some predictions. Geographically, that player might visit temples and orphanages related to the sect which raised them and they also may search through neighborhoods close to those areas where nobles live. That player might go back to the neighborhood where the orphanage was, and that orphanage might contain various clues in various forms to lead the character toward the next step along their journey, which means there needs to be a destination for each one of those clues, so the game master should keep this in mind as well. Narratively, clues may come in the form of non-player characters. Perhaps the game master may start the story off in that tavern by describing a dialogue between the thief and the old man playing cards as they discuss orphan children kidnapped by a secret cult. Or, when the character goes back to that old neighborhood, let's say they encounter a former member of the sect who watched over them as a child. This non-player character may have been nice, they may have been cruel, they may have been something in between. It's up to the game master and the way they want to play the story. Either way, they may possess a clue to identifying the character's parents. Perhaps, exploring that very same neighborhood, the character encounters others like themselves, former and fellow orphans that are now citizens of the same empire. These non-player characters now lead their own lives, occupying jobs throughout the city and maybe even the region. Who knows what they may have seen, heard, or know? 
Now, the game master doesn't want to make things too easy for the player, and so they need to create a few false leads within the geographic and narrative landscapes too, in the form of dead ends, wild goose chases, and red herrings. And so, this reminds us, again, that role-playing games and fictional entertainment are not necessarily true to reality. While the game master strives to create a sense of realism, they must balance this against a compelling sense of rhythm and progress within the story. The artificial progress of a framework which keeps a story moving forward and helps to engage players. Books, movies, and television shows have clear beginnings, middles, and ends, often called acts, and are completely unreal in the way that they fashion their stories. It is a rare occasion when real life is anywhere near as exciting as fiction, because fiction is designed to hold our attention by being compelling. And so stories are edited down to the most interesting, frightening, hilarious, exciting, and exhilarating moments while all the boring parts are snipped away. Fiction is more about verisimilitude than realism. Role-playing games are similar in this respect, except that they offer the participants the choice to pursue whatever they find compelling within the story. The answer is not always the one the game master expects, and that may mean that a 15 or 20 minute scene in which the players and a non-player character haggle over the price of a sword can be every bit as involving and engaging as a climactic final battle. While the game master might have a certain pace in mind, it is important for them to consider the various ways that the players become engaged, and sometimes that means leaving the story some space to breathe. And so, a game master adjusts the geographical and narrative landscape of the story by shortening or lengthening scenes, including non-player characters that hold player interest, playing up locations, clues, and conflicts that the players might find engaging. Now. In addition to monitoring player interest in the story, though, a game master also needs to monitor their comfort and participation. When two people engage in a good conversation, there is a healthy back and forth as each contribute ideas. As conversation continues, it steadily snowballs and grows. Sometimes it goes right, sometimes left, as the two participants explore a topic, consider an idea, or offer opinions. One person says something the other reacts to it, and back and forth it goes. Occasionally, things not necessarily related to the topic pop up that send participants off on tangents. Sometimes, as interest wanes, one or more of the participants begins to disengage and the conversation fizzles out. Sometimes they end powerfully with a change, resolution, or determination. Sometimes they end with no resolution at all, but instead, only more questions. In a role-playing game, engagement occurs when there is a similar back-and-forth of ideas between the game master and the players, without being offered options and then being given agency and control over what their characters do, players contribute nothing, becoming passive observers simply watching the story develop in the mind of the game master. Though we take the choices we are allowed to make in real life for granted, the game master needs to be aware of their role as a facilitator in order to ensure, enable, and empower all players to contribute. The game master must give the players reasons to make choices and then allow the players to make them. They must also ensure that players are making genuine choices of their own and not being forced into them. 
Is one player dominating the others? Is one player too shy to speak up for themselves? The game master must facilitate a balance in which each player is given an equal opportunity to shine and contribute to the story. While some of us are more outgoing than others, role-playing is a collaborative and cooperative medium that seeks verisimilitude, not actual reality. And so the game master must give each player a moment to shine at the table and each character a clear part in the scheme of the story. In a role-playing game, the player is the star, and the game master sets the stage for that player to shine. They help the players become the heroes they want to be. Not every game will achieve a perfect balance, but the Game Master owes it to the players to at least try. And that brings us to the last, but certainly not the least, reason for a Game Master to watch their players. To ensure that each feels safe and comfortable within the narrative. When we read a book or watch a movie, it's a one-way street. And if we come upon a scene which makes us uncomfortable, we're free to close the book, turn off the movie, or skip ahead, should we choose to. In a role-playing game, however, the participants work together, essentially ad-libbing based on concepts and ideas in order to create their own story. Even with clear themes, limits, and parameters set beforehand, in the ad-libbed heat of the moment, it's easy for participants to quickly find themselves in a sticky situation as the story develops. When this happens, it's sometimes hard for us to speak up and let our feelings be heard. There's a pressure for the player to uphold their part of the narrative, to go along with things they might not otherwise go along with in order to further the story the group is weaving together. And so, what is a participant to do if they find themselves in the midst of a scene which they don't wish to be a part of? A lot of groups have recently taken to the X-card system, literally keeping a card available to veto certain things should players find the story going to places they aren't comfortable with. The player places the X card on the table so that others can see that they're uncomfortable with the direction things are going. When the X card enters play, the participants may variously discuss what's happened or simply choose to rewind and retcon or fast forward, depending on how the group decides to handle things. In the next episode, We'll talk more about the X-Card and other safety systems and go into more details about the ways that other players can help as well. Let's now turn to the ways in which game masters use setting descriptions not just to set the mood, the look, and the feel of the game, but also the ways they use it to propel the story forward. A game master's descriptions provide the framework for the players to not just imagine the world, but from which the players actually make their decisions. While there are many ways in which to describe a scene, it's generally best to start from the outside and then work inward. The game master may start with the genre, establishing the mood and tone of the story, the broad strokes that affect the look and feel of the geographical and narrative landscapes. For example, a dark medieval city where humans fight the encroaching darkness. From there, the Game Master moves inward, where they delve deeper into setting the stage for the players. That dark medieval city may secretly be ruled by parasitic vampires that keep the people dumb and passive, feeding off of the locals when they become hungry. The people are frightened and speak in rumored whispers of what's happening in their city, fearfully superstitious and terrified of inciting the wrath of the vampires. 
Next, as the game master drills even deeper, they set the scene, establishing that the characters are assembled at the funeral of a mutual friend, somewhere at the base of the mountain that overlooks the small town. It's cold, the wind rustles, the fall leaves, and they tumble across an endless landscape of graves, the graves of victims of the vampire overlords. Next, the game master moves in even closer, this time focusing on non-player characters and objects at the scene. Looking around at the other attendees, you are struck by the looks of sorrow and sadness on their faces, except for one, who almost seems as if they were hiding something, perhaps relief? Their hands fiddle with a glowing pendant at the end of a necklace. Now, let's try that one more time, but let's go for a cold, unforgiving dystopian future in which humans are mere cogs in a larger machine. A world populated with mindless drones who go about their daily business, unaware of the role they play in powering the huge supercomputer that runs their planet. The people have no idea that they are simple cogs in a machine that exploits them in their everyday lives. Moving inward toward the first scene, the game master starts with the characters awakening within the confines of a dark hypersleep chamber, trapped and unable to move. Their skin raw and sensitive, the bottom of the hypersleep chamber slides open beneath them, and they are dropped unceremoniously through a chute. Tumbling, they're deposited on the cold, hard plastic floor of a featureless chamber. They look around the room, and through blurred vision, make out the shaking and shivering forms of the other beings that have been dumped into that same room. Surrounding them are five figures, dressed in dark uniforms and carrying long, cattle-prod-like devices. One of them, the one with the most chevrons running down the side of their uniform, turns toward you and sneers. These are both examples of big-to-small descriptions, and it's the traditional way of establishing setting and description, but it doesn't always have to be that way, and it's not always that simple. It's important for the game master to deliver the description in a way that highlights the information necessary for players to make their decisions. While it's certainly true that players need to take the initiative in interacting with the world around them, the game master needs to give the players a place to start from, just as we all have a place to start from when we enter a doctor's office for an appointment, or step into line at the DMV, or sit down at a desk to take a test. But it's not just about creating geographical landscape, it's also about propelling the narrative landscape too. Through description, the game master creates the framework from which the characters actually make their decisions. Elements within a scene, whether a non-player character is carrying a gun, or whether someone finds a clue in a treasure chest, on a scene-by-scene -scene basis help to create tension, drama, laughter, or other feelings that compel the characters to take action, thus moving the story forward. The descriptions of the geography, the non-player characters, and the objects don't just decorate the story, but also provide fuel for the narrative. How and when the game master describes these things often dictates the way in which players react to them. These descriptions help to immerse the players narratively within the game, giving them a stake in what's going on around them. By weaving descriptions carefully over the course of the game, the game master helps propel the story forward. This is not just important on a scene-by-scene -scene basis, but for the overall game, because each scene builds on the next, 
and when strung together, they form the landscape of a building narrative within the game. This leads us to one of the final things we're going to discuss in today's episode. Pacing. Everyone plays differently. Some like to get together on the weekends with beer and pretzels and just slowly let the story unfold. The story may meander, focusing on things like haggling with merchants, interacting with NPCs, or just plain killing things. Others invest themselves in the story, getting together on a weekly basis to find out what happens next. Still others blend the two. Thinking back to the Session Zero, the Game Master must take into account the wishes of the players. Are they looking for a beer and pretzels one-shot, for something more long-term that will build over multiple sessions? Either way, it's important to create an inertia that carries the story forward, and one of the simplest and easiest ways to do this is to remain aware that stories have a simple beginning, middle, and an ending. The beginning is the time when the problem arises. The middle is the time in which the heroes make an attempt to solve it, sometimes several times, and the ending is when the heroes ultimately triumph or fail. A simple three-act structure can work wonders on a story, turning a four-hour game into a whirlwind of plot and development as the narrative becomes increasingly more complex and builds toward an explosive final conclusion. But things don't end there, and it's often useful to break each of those three acts up into smaller segments themselves, giving each act its own beginning, middle, and ending, helping to propel one act into another. The original, classic Star Wars trilogy is a story told in three acts. Star Wars sets the tone for the series, ending on a high note with the destruction of the Death Star. But then... The Empire is emboldened by the victory and pushes hard, and the Empire strikes back to destroy the Rebel Alliance. It all culminates, then, in Return of the Jedi, when the Empire and the Rebels finally face off in a climactic battle. Some of the best ways to further a story is to end each act with a question, a mystery, or some other kind of explosive event, which gives the players a place to go for the next act. Ending an act in the middle of a scene in which a character is haggling with a merchant isn't propulsive enough to send the characters into the next act, but ending on the merchant being assassinated with the assassin fleeing into the market sounds a little more like it. It gives the players a place to go. Moreover, when a game master does their job properly, the ending of a scene or a game leaves the players wanting more, and leaves them with a compelling idea or question which they are determined to solve. It should leave them hungry, leave them not wanting to quit, but also leave them feeling satisfied, perhaps even full. A good ending to a game or a series of games gives the player something to think about during the week and something to look forward to for the next game. It maintains their interest and, hopefully, ensures their engagement with the story when they sit down to play again. And so finally, after all these hours we've reached the end of the game. Despite the mistakes we've made, there have been some triumphs too, and we've ended the game on a high note, a cliffhanger that leaves the players chattering as they collect their dice and pencils and character sheets. Nice work. Pat yourself on the back. But while the Game Master may have ended the game on a satisfying note, it's not quite over yet. There's still a little bit of bookkeeping to do. Quick notes wouldn't hurt, while things are fresh in the Game Master's mind. 
It also wouldn't hurt to think about any adjustments to the story that need to be made based on things the players did during the course of the game. Are they interested in one particular NPC? Were they blown away by a throwaway idea or line? Or were they bored by the villain you thought would terrify them? Sometimes players come up with better ideas than the game master does, and it's important for them to stay open to change and course correction. A good game master should never be afraid to steal from their players, or adjust the narrative as they go. If anything, it gives players a tremendous sense of satisfaction knowing that their educated guess or wacky theory proved true. Now is the time to jot down those ideas, to tweak and adjust the story for next week. Additionally, the Game Master should evaluate how the rules played out. Were there any problems or issues? Were these problems an error on the part of the Game Master, or is it time to consider some house rules? If one particular rule is not working out, there's no reason the Game Master can't change it. Perhaps it's time to sit down with the players and talk things out and discuss it. Then decide together how best to proceed before using that new rule. Finally, and most importantly, the Game Master should ask, Did everyone have fun? Ultimately, role-playing is about fun, and it's always important to ensure that everyone is having fun. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm tired. That was a lot to discuss, but I think we've covered the broad strokes of what Game Masters do before, during, and after a game. In future episodes, we'll take a deep dive into many of the steps we've covered, but for now, I think we have a better idea of the bigger picture. Speaking of which, in our next episode, we'll take a look at the role of the player in all of this. It's something we breezed past until now, but it's finally time to discuss. Until then, happy role-playing. Well, that's it for episode 3 of Role Player with a Thousand Faces. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send your comments and questions about role-playing games to mythandledgerdomain at gmail.com. That's myth, as in mythology, and ledgerdomain, as in trick of the hand. Once again, that's mythandledgerdomain at gmail.com. Roleplayer with a Thousand Faces is presented by Manufactured Myth and Ledger Domain a Boston RPG company. Our music is by E. John Stone. I'm Matt Yancic, and thank you for listening.